0: Well, certainly, John 10 is one of the most wonderful passages in all of the New Testament. And as you open your Bible to John 10, we see our Lord presented there by way of two great I am statements. I believe there's seven of those in the New Testament. And this morning, we're going to see at least two of those. He will say in 10.7 that I am the door of the sheep he will later say in John chapter ten, verse eleven that I am the good shepherd. now, as we mentioned as we looked at John ten last week, that the passage quickly addresses the false entry by the false shepherds. In fact, look it again in your Bible in 10.1. truly, truly, I say to you, our Lord said, he said, he who does not enter by the sheepfold, by the door, but climbs in another way, that man is a thief and a robber. And so he mentions that in verse 1. Look at verse 8. Jesus said, all who come before me are thieves and robbers. He said, but the sheep did not listen to them. And then again a third time in verse 10, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. So real quickly as you set your eyes on John chapter 10, there is a contrast between the good shepherd in chapter 10 and the false shepherds, those namely of the Pharisees in chapter 9. You remember that in chapter 9, Jesus healed the man that was born blind. And as we step into chapter 10, I just remind you again that there is a chapter break here in your Bible and in my Bible, but if We're reading just a letter. There is no chapter break. It is the same audience that he's talking to in chapter 10. There is no time gap in the text. And so he is speaking, if you will, to the healed blind man. He is speaking to the disciples, certainly earlier in chapter 9. He is speaking to the Pharisees who are listening. Do you remember there? Just glance back in 939. Jesus said, for judgment, I came into this world that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. In other words, if you know you need the Savior, then he's going to open your eyes. But if you think you see, you're going to become blind. And verse 40, some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, are we also blind? And Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. In other words, if you knew you had sinned, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see... Your guilt remains. And so he's speaking to the healed man, to the disciples, to the Pharisees, certainly to the growing crowd. Now, we said last week that the thieves and the robbers represent the self-appointed Jewish religious leaders. They are the ones in verse 1 of chapter 10 who climbed uh, the walls of the sheepfold to spiritually fleece and slaughter the people. Now, obviously, our Lord is speaking in metaphors here. Glance down in chapter 10. He said, this figure of speech Jesus used with him. And it's not a parable. That is a different Greek word. He's speaking to us in a figure of speech. And certainly, as we study the Bible, you would hear that said, that we study a historical, literal hermeneutic. In other words, when we interpret the Scriptures, we study it in its history and its context, and we take the word of God literally. However, there are times like this passage. Clearly, it says in 10.6, this figure of speech Jesus used with them. So he's speaking to us in a metaphor. He's speaking to us as Jesus said, I am the door. He's obviously not a literal door, but he is the door unto salvation. Jesus is obviously not a shepherd. He is Jesus Christ in the flesh, but he likens himself to a good shepherd. He basically says those of the religious leaders, they're the thieves and the robbers who come in. Now we know from that imagery in the Old Testament, we looked at last week, where God is a shepherd. We read this morning in Psalm 23 that the Lord is my shepherd. And so the imagery is all over both Old Testament and the New Testament. But what's indicting is that the Jewish leaders were in a long line of false shepherds. This is stated over and over again in the scripture. Isaiah, and I'm going to read some of these. Don't worry to turn. If you want to write them down, you, you may. Isaiah spoke of the false shepherds. Here's what the prophet said in Isaiah 56. It says there, God speaking through that prophet, his watchmen are blind. I find it interesting. Because here he just healed the man that was born blind. That blind man now sees. But he uses this imagery in Isaiah 56, 9. His watchmen are blind. He said they are all without knowledge. He said they are silent dogs. He said they cannot bark. In other words, the shepherds of that day were were mute, if you will. They should have spoke truth, but they went silent like so many today. He said they are dreaming In Isaiah 56, lying down, loving to slumber. In other words, they're lazy. He called them dogs that have a mighty appetite. They are never satisfied. In other words, these false shepherds are greedy for gain. They are shepherds, the writer said in 56, who have no understanding. They have all turned to their own way. And it says each to his own gain, one and all. This is the testimony of scripture regarding these leaders who are likened to be as shepherds. Jeremiah the prophet, without mincing words, said in 10.21, the shepherds, and this is what it says, are stupid, and they do not inquire of the Lord. Therefore, they have not prospered, and all of their flock is scattered. This is what false teachers do. Some draw a crowd and tickle ears. Others just scatter the flock. In Jeremiah 12.10, it says, many shepherds, the Lord said, have ruined my vineyard. My people have become lost sheep. And again, it's that whole imagery of the one being lost and the 99 or the one, you know, the Lord goes after the one lost. And he says there in 12.10, my people have become lost sheep. And so God pronounced a judgment on these shepherds. Jeremiah 23, he pronounced a curse. He said, woe to the shepherds who are destroying and scattering the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of Israel concerning the shepherds who are tending my people. You have scattered my flock. You have driven them away. You have not attended to them. Behold, I am about to attend to you. In other words, he will judge them. And so all through the Old Testament, you see that kind of imagery. In the New Testament, as well as in our own day, there are many false teachers. And I say that to you, beloved, to warn you, there are many. Jesus would say in the New Testament, in Matthew 7, beware of the false prophets who come to you in what kind of clothing? Sheep's clothing. But inwardly, Jesus said in Matthew 7, they are ravenous wolves. It is why Howard Hendricks The great Bible professor from Dallas Seminary said the greatest unresolved problem confronting the church today is the screaming need for leadership. Elders, pastors who preach sound doctrine. In fact, Paul warned the church at Ephesus or the Ephesian church. He said, I know after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. They come in among you. And that is one of the reasons why we do membership class. Not all can teach here. We at least try to do some kind of vetting process at membership to make sure that we're on the same page together. But here he says in Acts 20 that savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Peter wrote this in his epistle, false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies. So it was in Peter's time, so it is in our day. In fact, Titus said that there are false teachers in the flock and they need to be silenced. In fact, John the Apostle in his epistle, you remember we went through that, he said, do not believe every spirit. He said, test the spirits to see whether they are from God. He said, because many false prophets have gone on in into the world. 1 John four one. I mean, this is the teaching of Scripture. It's all over the Old Testament. It's all over the New Testament. And so we need to be brokers of truth. What, if any man is called to be a pastor or a missionary or a shepherd or an elder, he is a broker of doctrine. He is a broker of truth. He is a shepherd who's protective of the flock. Philip Keller, maybe you've seen the The book he has written, not Tim Keller, but Philip Keller. He wrote a book on Psalm 23, and he himself was a shepherd. But he said, it reminds me, quote, of the behavior of a band of sheep under attack. He said, from cougars and bears and wolves. He said, often in blind fear, he's talking about the sheep. He said, or stupid unawareness, they will stand rooted to the spot, watching their companions be cut to the shreds. He said, "The predator will pounce upon one, and then one, and then another of the flock, tearing them with tooth and claw. Meanwhile, the other sheep may act as if they did not even hear or recognize the carnage going on around them." Keller said, "It is as though they were totally oblivious to the obvious peril of their own precarious position." End of quotes. I mean, today in God's flock, many are unable to detect the carnage in our midst. But you'd ask, is there hope? And the answer is, yes, there's hope. What a comfort to know that Jesus Christ is the good shepherd. Amen? We have a good shepherd. He is the Lord Jesus Christ. And so as we walk into chapter 10, I want to look at this text along two lines of thought that reveal why Jesus is the good shepherd. And we began that last week. We want to look at first the description of the shepherd in 10, 1 through 6. And then I believe from 7 to 18, we want to look at the explanation of the Savior. But he gives here first the description of the shepherd. And I won't go into that extensively. We talked on that last week. Remember when Jesus said he's just giving a description and he's using a metaphor. He's using verse 6, a figure of speech. He says, he who does not enter, he begins in a negative forefront because of what just happened. Do you remember what had just happened in chapter nine thirty four? He said to the blind man, they, the Pharisees, you were born in utter sin and you would teach us. And they cast him out. They threw him out of the synagogue. They threw him out of Jewish life. They threw him out of Jewish culture. Can you believe that? Jesus just healed a man that had been born blind and he began to speak truth to them and those religious leaders who are the thieves and the robbers just threw him out of the synagogue and they were all afraid of these would-be false teachers because they feared their own livelihood but they just threw a guy out that God Almighty had opened the eyes of the blind and the reason that I said that we're still in the same context is look down in chapter 10 in verse 21 on the response Others said they are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? So again, you're in the same context with the same audience. And he begins to give this picture here. He said, he who does not enter by the sheepfold. And you remember where I explained the sheepfold last Week that often in a village there were many flocks that would come into that sheepfold. The sheepfold was a constriction sometimes of even the brick and clay that they would make and it just went around in a corner and, uh, you know, it closed off, if you will. They would lay briars on the top so people or predators could, could not come in at night. And then there was a door. But here he says if he doesn't enter by the sheepfold into that sheep pen, if you will, by the door he climbs in another way. That man is a thief and robber. And again, he's using a metaphor because in real shepherding, in the physical shepherding, there would be thieves that would come in. There would be robbers who would come in. They wouldn't come in at the door. They would climb over in another way. And I mentioned last week that they would slit the throat of the sheep and then they would, you know, take the wool from the sheep and take take the, the meat from the sheep and they would leave. They would done their business, but they didn't come in by the door. They came in and climbed over the wall. But he said in verse 2, he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. In other words, the real shepherd, he comes in at the door. Verse three, to him, the gatekeeper opens. Just stop there for a second. There was often in one of those village sheepfolds, there was a number of uh, shepherds that kept their sheep in that sheepfold at night, if you will, and they hired a gatekeeper. And the gatekeeper would open, and the sheep, look at verse three, would hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name, and he leads them out. Again, the picture there of a real shepherd as he goes in, presumably in the morning, to him the gatekeeper opens and when that one particular shepherd of that one particular flock would give his cadence, would give his call, out his little sheep would come. Maybe somewhere between 20 to 30 sheep or so. They would just come out. They, they knew the shepherd. They knew the shepherd's voice, if you will. He would lead them out. Look at verse 4. When he brought them out, it says all his own. In other words, that shepherd's own sheep. There might have been five, six different families of shepherds in there, but it was this one particular shepherd. When he gave his call, they all came out to his own voice. And it said the sheep, verse 4, follow him. They know his voice. Interesting, a stranger they will not follow. They will flee from him in verse 5, for they do not know the voice of the stranger. And so here is the description of the shepherd, if you will. He had names for the sheep. He had a, his own peculiar uh, call to them. And as they hear, they would go out. And we said last week that they knew every mark on those sheep. But a stranger flees. That's the description of the shepherd. But the plot twists before us. Look at verse 6. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying. Now, obviously, they understood the analogy he was given. They all knew about a shepherd. They all knew about a sheep. They all knew what the shepherd would do with the sheep. But it says there in 10.6, they didn't understand. In other words, they missed the point. They didn't understand what the meaning was behind this description. And I would say to you, how could they understand they are not his what? Sheep, they missed the point. And so we move from the description of the shepherd to, secondly, the explanation of the Savior. And as we track now the text from verse 7, probably down through 18, the purpose of the text, the author's purpose, jumps out to us in a number of statements that explain why Jesus is the Good Shepherd. Now, I just want you to set your eyes, he's not been called the Good Shepherd yet. He will call himself the good shepherd. Look, in verse 11, that's the first time he says it. He says, I am the good shepherd. Look down in your Bible in verse 14. He says, I am the good shepherd. And so he's going to identify himself as the shepherd. And so first, let's look at a couple of just points that just just are illuminated for us to understand why Jesus is the good shepherd. First, let me say that he is a sovereign shepherd shepherd he is a sovereign shepherd there's a note of authority in this passage the pharisees they have human authority but not biblical authority as you come into chapter 10 there's a note of authority here he is a sovereign shepherd the sheep hear his voice and the sheep follow him in fact not only do they hear his voice not only do they follow him it says they know his voice But he is here a sovereign shepherd. In other words, the good shepherd has chosen his sheep. He calls them by name. They know his voice. They follow him. Now, obviously, in the explanation of the Savior, the sheep are his flock. They are believers. Look down at verse 7. I don't probably have to say that. You think that's obvious. Certainly it is. He said, I am the door of the sheep. Again, he's using a metaphor, not the sheep physically with wool, like in New Zealand where they have 70 million sheep and 3 million people. He's likening you to the sheep and he says, I am the door of the sheep. Look down at verse 16. He says there, I have other sheep that are not in this fold. Presumably the Gentiles he's talking about. But these are believers. Look down at verse 26. He says, you do not believe me because you are not among my sheep. In other words, you're not saved. You're not following me. Verse 27 of chapter 10. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. And here, beloved, the sheep hear his voice. Because God has sovereignly called them. He's sovereignly called you. Now, as, as we approach this, I, I don't want to take too long here, but I don't want to miss this. This is what we call in biblical theology, the effectual call of God. In other words, if you're here and you're redeemed, you have been called out. There is a general call that goes out to everyone, but we recognize in Scripture there is an effectual call you say scott what does the effectual what do, what do you mean the effectual call well just by that we mean that it's effective in other words the call of god has come out and his sheep hear his what voice he's called them out he's called them out out of sin he's called them out out of death he's called them unto salvation that call is made effective by the power of the word of God. It is made effective by the power of the Holy Spirit. God has chosen to use the power of his word and the power of his Holy Spirit to bring about an effectual sovereign call. Now, beloved, as we look at this, I remind you that the imagery here of the sheep hearing his voice reveals the human response to the divine call given to those who are redeemed. In other words, if He's called you, you hear His voice. You follow Him. It is the human response to that divine call. Now, just to make sure that you understand that this is a rich biblical history that I could spend weeks on, but I won't, let me highlight some of that to you. Look over in your Bible to the book of Romans. Let me show you this. In the book of Romans, it speaks. And all over the New Testament, it speaks of this call. And I'm illustrating here that he is first and foremost a, a sovereign shepherd. But in Romans 1.6, he said, through, who, through whom, and I'm in 1.5, he said, we have received grace. He said, apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are, what? Called. To belong to Jesus Christ. You who are called. In fact, look over at Romans chapter 8. You see the delineation of this calling there. It is all over the word of God. But you remember those whom God loves in 828. All things work together for the good. Verse 30. And those whom he predestined, he also what? called. In other words, he saw you in his mind before the foundation of the world. He also called and those whom he called, he also what? Justified. In other words, there is a a sovereign shepherd here who calls. He calls to his own sheep. His sheep hear his voice. Keep turning to the right. One more book in first Corinthians chapter one and verse two. You say, Scott, why are you highlighting this? Because we just sang, we're going to go to the glories of Calvary, to the deep truths of Calvary. But you remember when he writes to the church, these are deep truths. He says in 1-2, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, here it is, called to be what? Saints. You were called, a call, a divine call. There is a sovereign shepherd here. He called you out. Glance down in 1 Corinthians one twenty three. That classic statement. 1 Corinthians one twenty three. Paul said. But we preach. He said. Christ crucified. A stumbling block to the Jews. Folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are. What? Called. Both Jews and Greeks. Christ the power of God. And the wisdom of God. He is a sovereign shepherd. He calls you to himself. And his sheep hear his voice that's the human response and they follow him look over at the book of galatians if you will just for a moment a couple books later galatians chapter one paul writing there to the church at galatia and he says in that classic verse in 1 6 i am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who what called you he called you if you're here this morning and you're coming to the lord's table in communion you ought to be humbled you're here this morning not by your, your own human ingenuity, not by you pulling yourself up by your bootstraps, not by anything you have done. You are here because a sovereign call went out. And you say, well, Scott, did I receive that call? And I'd say, absolutely, you received that call. John 1, 12, as many as received him, to them he gave the right, what? To become the children of God. In fact, I was with John MacArthur on Friday night at a Q&A on a live cast. Uh, late at night on Friday night, uh, going back to Romania, and they asked him about John one twelve. How how does one twelve to as many received them to them he gave. How does that fit into the package of this Reformation five hundred year mark here? How does receiving the call, uh, you know, balance out with a sovereign God? And of course, uh, it does balance out because you were born again. In the next verse, in one thirteen. Not by your own will, but by a sovereign God. But you have to receive that truth. You, have to, you receive it, do you not, by faith, but even the faith you have is a what? It's a gift. But here is a sovereign call that goes out. You say, well, why is it a sovereign call? Because in biblical theology, in Ephesians 2, 1, original sin, when we were born, renders us dead in our trespasses and what? Sins were not alive. So God Almighty must quicken. He must call you through his word and by his spirit to embrace the gospel through faith. Yes, you receive him, but you do so and you've been given faith as a gift. Look over at Second Thessalonians just for a moment. Just trying to give you a little biblical theology here. In Second Thessalonians chapter 2. He says there, does Paul writing to the church at Thessalonica in 1 Thess 2, uh, I'm sorry, go to 2 Thessalonians. 2 Thessalonians 2, 13. He's going to say there, but we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord. Watch this, because God has chosen you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the spirit and belief in the truth to this Verse 14, he, what? He called you through our gospel. And there's many other verses. 1 Peter 1.15 says, As he who called you is holy, he exhorted us to be holy. Second Peter 1.3, it says, His divine power is granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us into his own glory and excellence. Jude The half-brother of our Lord will say in Jude 1 to those who are called and kept by Jesus Christ. In other words, as you glance at this, as you see this, he says, my sheep, hears my voice. You don't get it because you're not of my fold. But my sheep hear my voice and they follow me and they obey me because they've been called. And here's the human response. You hear his voice and you follow him. I mean, these are the truths that we've already looked at in John 6, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me, what? Draws him. In other words, he draws. In other words, he calls the sheep unto himself. In fact, can I just show you something in John 17? Look over at John 17 just for a moment. Not only does he call us, but you recognize that as those who have been called by God, you've been chosen from by God before the foundation of the world but this language just strikes me in seventeen six, jesus in his in his prayer there said i have manifested your name to the people whom you what gave me out of the world god the father gave god the son a love gift and it was you in other words, in 17.6, I've given the name, your name, to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Look at 17.6. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. That is the teaching of Scripture. Look at seventeen verse nine. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Listen, if you come to communion this morning, God the Father gave you to the Lord Jesus Christ. God the Father gave them to, that's what the text says. Look over at cha- one more, chapter 18, verse 9. Maybe we'll reserve this for later, but it says there, this was to fill, fulfill the word that he had spoken in 18.9. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not, what? One. How could you be lost? How could you ever be lost? God the Father before eternity began gave to the Son a love gift and that love gift is you. And if he called you and if he redeemed you and if he justified you and if he's going to glorify you one day, then how could he ever lose you? And so the believer has the assurance of salvation. So beloved, the sheep hear his voice because God through the great shepherd has sovereignly called you. But not only, number one, is he a sovereign shepherd, but secondly, look back to John 10, he is a saving shepherd. Not only a sovereign shepherd, but he is a saving shepherd. You see that when Jesus said in clear language, he said to them in John 10, 7, truly, truly. Here's a solemn pronouncement. He said, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. He's a saving shepherd. He's the door of the sheep. Now, again, that's the third great I am. He said in John 6 and verse 35, he is the bread of life, or I am, ego, I me, mean, I am the bread of life. He said in John eight twelve, I am, which is Greek, ego, I me, mean, I am the light of the world. And so he says here, his third great I am statement in John's gospel, I am the door. In fact, look down in your Bible in chapter 10, verse 9. He says it a second time. And I point this out to you. He says, I am the door. And if anyone enters by me, he will be what? Saved. He's going to go in and out and find pasture. Beloved, you know this. He's not only a sovereign shepherd, but there's only one way to enter into eternal life. And it is Jesus Christ and him alone. He said, I am the door. When the famous preacher G. Campbell Morgan was traveling across the Atlantic years ago on a steamer, one of the passengers on that steamer was a man by the name of Sir George Adam Smith. And at that time, Sir Adam George Smith was the most famous Old Testament scholar there was. And so as some have said, here's the greatest preacher in that day, G. Campbell Morgan, and the greatest Old Testament scholar, Smith, on that steamer. And Morgan said, this is from him, said that of one of the stories that Sir George told of the East was this one. Sir George told Campbell Morgan this. He said, I was one day traveling with a guide and came across a shepherd and a sheep, and he fell into conversation with him. And the man showed him the fold in which the sheep were led at night. It consisted of four walls, okay, with a way in. Sir George said to the shepherd, that is where they go at night? Yes, said the shepherd. And when they are in there, they are perfectly safe. But there is no door, Sir George. And the shepherd said, I am the door. And Morgan said this was not of the story. He was not speaking to a Christian man. He was not speaking the language of a Christian man, nor was he speaking the language of the New Testament. He was speaking from the Arab shepherd's standpoint. So Sir George uh, looked at him and said, "What what, what do you mean by the door, said the shepherd, to the shepherd? And he said, when the light has gone, And all the sheep are inside. I lay in the open space. And no sheep ever goes out but across my body. And no wolf ever comes in unless he crosses my body. And that shepherd said, I am the door. And so you understand here the imagery of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one who has access to almighty God. He and he alone the thieves and the robbers come in another way. But he and he alone is the door. And by the Lord Jesus Christ, you come in. And by the Lord Jesus Christ, you go out. Look what he said in chapter 10.10. He said, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. And watch this. Jesus said, I came, his purpose, that they may have life and have it abundantly. And so here our Lord describing His saving work as a shepherd describes the quantity of life. Look at it again in 10.10. The thief comes, the false teacher, he's stealing and killing and destroying. But in 10.10, he says, I came that they may have life. And obviously here, when you look at life, there's two pictures of it. There is quantity of life and there is quality of life when you read that in the New Testament. So he's saying, listen, I'm the saving shepherd. I am the door upon access to the living God. And I am going to give you life in 1010. I came that they may have life. Now, he's not talking just about life in this world as we would know it. If someone went to a funeral and they died and they were 61 or... We'd say God gave them 61 years, or if they died, they gave them 71 71 years. Someone lives to 81, God gave them 81 years. That's not the picture here. Jesus is saying of the saving uh, shepherd that he is, he gives everlasting life. He gives life forever. And so not only is he the door, but when you come into that door, you into everlasting life. Look down at John chapter 10 in verse 28 there. He says, my, or 1028, I give them, what does he say? Eternal life. He doesn't just give life. He gives quantity of life. He gives you eternal life. That is the teaching of the scripture. In fact, look down again at 1028. I love this phrase. And they will never, what? Perish. Perish. In other words, if if God the Father gave God the Son a love gift, you, and then it says here, Jesus, as the saving shepherd, gives them eternal life, you will never perish. Look back in your Bible in John chapter 3 just for a moment. Let me just remind you of this great truth that he is a, a saving shepherd. You remember that it says there in 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave There's that word, his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have, what? Eternal life. Here is the only way someone can live forever. Here is the only way that eternal life is given. It's through Jesus Christ. He is the door, but he came to give life. He came not to just give you quantity in a few years. He came to give you eternal life, and it only comes Through the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at John chapter 3 verse 36. Whoever believes in the Son has what? Eternal life. And by the way, you can keep going. Whoever does not obey the Son in 3.36 shall not see life, but the wrath of God, what? Remains on him. And so God's the one who gives eternal life. Turn over to chapter 4. Certainly you remember there with the woman of the well, at the well. Whoever in 414 drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to what? Eternal life. Jesus Christ is the saving shepherd. He is the sovereign shepherd, but he is here the saving shepherd who gives and grants eternal life. Just as you come to the Lord's table in a moment, would you just contemplate on that? That he has given life. He's the only one that life is found and bound up And Look over at chapter 6 just for a moment. You remember there in that great discourse where he fed the 5,000. In chapter 6 in verse 57. He said there as the living father sent me. And I live because of the father. So whoever feeds on me. In other words whoever believes on me. He will live because of me he will live forever in fact look at verse 58 this is the bread that came down from heaven not like the bread the fathers ate and died whoever feeds on this bread will live what forever he gives eternal life he is a saving shepherd and there is no other look over at john chapter 11 just go past the good shepherd just for a moment there is it says in John 11, in one of my favorite scriptures, in verse 25, Jesus said to her, he was talking to those women there, and he said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he, what, live. This is eternal life. This is quantity of life. But you know what's amazing? Look back at John chapter 10. He not only gives quantity of life, it's called eternal life. He gives abundant life. He gives quality of life here and now. Look at 1010. I came that they may have life and they may have it, what? Abundantly. The King James Version says abundant life. And of course, there are a number of false teachers who use this verse. What do you say? What do you mean use the verse? All false teachers use the scripture. All of them. But they use it to their own device. And so many of them use this, that Jesus wants you to be happy, healthy, wealthy, prosperity gospel. Because it says he gives abundant life. No, I don't need to go into that. This is the abundant life. It's far more than anything physical. It's far more than anything temporal. You receive love. You receive forgiveness you receive protection you receive care you receive salvation itself you have the ability verse 9 to go freely in and out in other words into the pasture of God this is an access to God's blessing of giving you every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in fact there's so much more but he's a sovereign shepherd he's a saving shepherd he's the door he gives eternal life he gives abundant life but thirdly He is a sacrificing shepherd, okay? He is a sacrificing shepherd. Look at verse 11. Such a great statement. He said, I am the good shepherd. And he said, the good shepherd, what? Lays down his life for the sheep. And obviously, when he says, I'm not just the shepherd, he says, I am the good shepherd. He is the Kalos shepherd. He stands in contrast to all the thieves. All the robbers, all those who steal, all those who kill, all those who destroy. Jesus Christ is the good shepherd. In fact, he's the good shepherd of the earlier description. He's the shepherd that comes in at the door, but he is now the door. He is the shepherd that leads the flock in. He is the shepherd that leads the flock out. He is the good shepherd that gives unto the sheep and brings them into the green pastures, if you will, as we read this morning. In fact, Jesus Christ is the long-awaited fulfillment of Ezekiel 34, where God said, I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost. I will bring back the strayed, the blind. He says, I will bind up, if you will, the injured. I will strengthen the weak. And so here, God, that was depicted in the Old Testament as the good shepherd saving and rescuing and protecting the flock. God is now identified in the New Testament in the Lord Jesus Christ fulfilling that divine role. Jesus was the fulfillment of that promise. He is the good shepherd. You say, well, what does the good shepherd do? Well, he doesn't fleece the flock. He doesn't back in Ezekiel 34 take from the flock. No, he does just the opposite. He lays down his life. Look at it again in verse 11. He said, I lay down or the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And obviously, this points to his sacrificial death. If you just look down in your Bible at 1011, there's a rich little word there. It's the word for. You see that? For the sheep. It's just a little Greek term. It's called huper, and it's it's a famous statement, but it just means on behalf of the sheep. On behalf for the sheep, or who pair on behalf of the sheep, it speaks of a sacrificial death. It is the deliberate, willing action of our Lord. You don't lay down your life for him, he lays down his life for you. It almost seems the opposite, doesn't it? You would think how great our God is, that you would lay down your life for him to enter into glory. And he's the good shepherd precisely here because he comes sinless and he lays down his life for you. In fact, look at chapter 10, verse 15. Just as the father knows me and he says, I know the father. He says, and I lay my life down for the sheep. Listen, as we come in just a moment, he laid his life down for you. He is the great shepherd, is he not? In fact, look at chapter 10, verse 17. Glance down there. For this reason, the Father loves me. Here's why. Because I lay down my life, he says, and that I may take it up again. Obviously, he's resurrected. Verse 18, he said, no one takes it from me. The Jewish leaders are seeking to kill me as he speaks, if you will. They will one day with the, the authorities, the Roman authorities, crucify him. But he says in 10, in ten eighteen, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. He says, I have authority, verse 18, to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father. And over and over and over again in the New Testament, he is the good shepherd. And you see this in the biblical language that he gave himself for the sheep. In fact, Jesus said in John 15, three, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. So beloved, if you can fathom this, you have a sovereign God who called you out before eternity. You have a saving shepherd who came to die for you. You have a saving shepherd who sacrificed thirdly for you by laying his life down for you. In fact, in one of those great purpose clause statements in Mark 10, 45, the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his what life a ransom for many. In other words, he's showing us and describing for us what the good shepherd does. The good shepherd, according to Galatians 1, 4, he gave himself. And here's what I want you to catch for our sins. You could say he gave himself for your sins. It's never just that he gave himself for sins. It's always this phrase. He gave himself for our sins. Certainly you've probably memorized Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and what? Gave himself for me. Read yourself into that. It says in Ephesians 5.2 that he loved us and he gave himself up for us. Husbands, 5.25, love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. This is the refrain of the New Testament. It says in Titus 2.14 that he gave himself for us and redeemed us from all lawlessness. 1 Peter 2.24, he himself bore our sins. He bore your sins in his body on the tree. 1 John, here the same author in his epistle said, by this we know love in 1 John 3.16, that he laid his life down for us. He shows, does God, his love for us in Romans 5.8, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for what? Us, Listen, as we come to the Lord's table, you have a savior, you have a sovereign shepherd, you have a saving shepherd, you have a sacrificing shepherd. In fact, in Romans 8.32, he who did not spare his own son, it says, but gave himself up for us. This is the clear teaching of the scripture. Paul said, I delivered unto you of first importance what I also received, that Christ Died for our what? Sins. Listen, we have a wonderful shepherd, don't we? And he loves you. And he died for you. He saved you. He redeemed you. He sacrifices you. He protects you. In fact, just the last phrase, look over at 1028. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my, what, hand. You are secure. You say, well, Scott, I don't feel secure. Well, you don't feel secure, but you're secure. If you're in Christ and you say, but I'm not what I should be. Well, I'm not what I should be. And we'll never be what we should be until we get to glory. But listen, if you've recognized who he is in his saving work, then he he will not allow any thief, any wolf to come in and snatch you out of the father's hand. In fact, in one of the gospels, you remember in eschatology there that the signs of the Antichrist will be so powerful that if possible, he will seek to deceive the what? The elect, but he can't do it. It's not possible. But the signs will will be so powerful that some will be tempted to follow, but they won't be able to do it if it's possible and it's not possible. And so he... He holds you dearly. We have a great shepherd, don't we, flock? He loves you. He's sovereign. He's saving and he's sacrificing on your behalf.